following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to 2 Timothy this morning. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be working our way through 2 Timothy. So the rest of July and into August, we're going to be slow rolling through 2 Timothy. But this morning, um, I would like to take some time to kind of give an overview of the text as a whole. We're going to look at these first two verses, but we're going to also look at the text and kind of pick out some key themes, pick out some of the key concepts of the text, get a good understanding of what we're going to be looking at as we dive deeper over the next couple months. This is truly a special letter, 2 Timothy, because it was considered to be the last letter of the Apostle Paul. And he shares some of his final thoughts as he looks towards this end of his ministry, as he looks towards his coming death. This letter is actually qualified, so you can say obviously as a genre, you could say it's an epistle, it's a letter, but even more specifically, you could say it's a farewell discourse in which we see these things happening throughout the text. We get Moses in Deuteronomy 31 as he hands off the reins of authority to Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua does the same thing in Joshua 23 and 24 where he commands Israel's leaders to obey the Lord. He renews the covenant. He calls upon the people to serve the Lord and him alone before his death. David, in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, gives charges to Israel. He gives the charge to Solomon. He offers up prayers and, and offerings before the Lord. He anoints Solomon and then he dies as well. And then one of the most famous being obviously Jesus in the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16, where he speaks about being the way, the truth, and the life. He talks about the promise of this coming Holy Spirit. He says that he is the true vine, and to be a part of the vine is to be a believer. And you're only connected, you can only be good fruit if you're a part of this vine. He promises hardship and suffering. But he promises the work of the Spirit, that sorrow will be turned into joy. And he closes by reminding those that are following him that he has overcome the world, so there's nothing for them to fear. So what makes this letter specifically a farewell discourse? Well, it has some of the classic features. The speaker, the writer, Paul, is discussing his coming departure, which we'll look at a little bit. He gives instructions to keep God's commands. He gives kind of a, a path forward for what's to be done after his departure. He speaks of what will come, what to expect. He provides comfort for those that he's leaving behind. 
And he appeals to the reader, to all that hear this letter, to remember what has been taught, to remember this faith that he has brought to them. So I pray that as we look at this letter and we consider the context of it, we're shaped by the reality that Paul is setting out to give his final storyline here, his final message. After all the toil, the struggle, and even the success in his ministry, this ministry that the Lord has called him to, is now coming to an end. His death is approaching, and he knows. And he's writing to his protege, Timothy, this one that he calls his child in the faith and sharing the truths of what must be extreme important importance for him. How beautiful is it that we have that penned down for us to study together? As I've been listening to and reading this uh, letter repeatedly over the last couple months, I'm engrossed with this reality that Paul is finishing out his ministry here. And as I kept reading it and hearing it, I kept thinking to myself, if I am writing my final letter, what am I going to say? Imagine you know when your death is coming. You have your final conversation. You have your final letter to write. What are you going to say? What's of utmost importance to you to share? We get to see what Paul was thinking about. We get to see what Paul was concerned with. We get to see what Paul believed was of utmost importance. And so I invite you to consider that as we look at the text, but also to think about that on your own time. What is central in your life now, this morning, every day? What is central? If you were to write that final letter, what would you say? If you were to have that final conversation, what would you say? So as we begin to work through this series, which I have entitled Persevere in the Gospel, and we look in more depth to this most beautiful final letter, I thought it would be good to spend some time, as I said, building upon our understanding of it as a whole, helping us to see this overview of the letter. I want us to all have a common understanding of where we're going here, the reason for the letter, the history behind the letter, the overarching themes and outlines of the letter. To do this, I would like to start by looking at our first two verses this morning with some depth, as it provides a great knowledge base, because we're going to look at kind of the five W's, right? Who, when, where, why, and what for us as we look through this, this study of Second Timothy. Part of that being these first two verses giving us the perfect who. So we'll start today there, diving in some depth. Then we'll look at some overarching themes. We'll talk a little bit about the places that we're looking at, the key themes, as I said, and kind of just touch our toes into the water a little bit of Second Timothy. And Lord willing, we'll have the opportunity over the next several weeks to dive deep into those depths because there's so much beauty and so much power found in these words here. So friends, please turn your attention to 2 Timothy and chapter 1. Be reading the first two verses for us this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. 
to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We find here one of the common Greco-Roman letters. You get this entry into the letter with the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and a greeting. So we get to answer our first question, who? Who is writing the letter and who is this written to? Well, it seems pretty clear. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's almost obvious, right? You'd think to yourself, well, how could anyone confuse that? But there's actually been discussion over the last couple hundred years of whether or not this was actually Paul. Some of the arguments include that this is an intimate letter um, from Paul to Timothy. So why would he emphasize his apostleship? Why would he say Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus? Timothy knows it. Paul obviously understands it. So why would he repeat it? However, as we dive into the text, we're going to see that Paul shares a lot of truths that I'm sure Timothy knew. That doesn't change the fact that Paul had written the letter. Paul confirms his appointment as an apostle, not to negate the authorship, but rather to confirm to Timothy who is writing to him. It reminds him that Paul is speaking not only with the brotherly affection of a fellow believer, but with the authority that not all have been given. He is speaking as one who has seen the risen Christ. Some have also argued that Paul did not write this or any of the pastoral epistles. He didn't write 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus. Because of the vocabulary used, because of the structure that is laid out for the church, it doesn't match with some of the other letters. However, our issue arises when we take those three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, as a group and try and separate them from everything else. Well, if you do that, then sure, you can make the argument all day. Those seem completely different than other, stuff, other writings of his. However, if we look at each one as an individual letter, like we do with every other letter in the, the New Testament, we can see that this is just a part of Paul's writing. We can see that this is just one step in the way that Paul writes and shares. And finally, there's many that have said that someone utilized his name to write under him. They've said that it was not really Paul writing, but to someone wanting to claim authority of Paul and therefore used his name. However, this was not common in personal letters, which this is one of them. This may have been common in other types of writing, but not in a letter. Additionally, the early church looked at these documents, looked at each one for authenticity. They looked at each letter that came to be a part of the canon, and they said, we're not going to take ones that were not authentic, that were not written by the person that they said they were written by. So if they were, then it would have been an ethical issue. If it had been somebody writing as Paul, but it wasn't actually Paul, then it would have been something ethically concerning, because then they would say, well, how do we know this person has written as one who has seen the risen Christ? How do we know this person has written as one who has the authority to do so? So we can conclude that this letter is indeed from Paul, from the apostle himself. But notice what he says about himself here in this first verse. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Why does he specify his apostolic role? What does he want Timothy and each of us here this morning to remember about him? First, 
he is indeed an apostle, and that he has seen the risen Christ. Remember that this was a requirement for apostol, like apostolic authority. To be an apostle, for apostleship, you had to have seen the risen Christ. That was a requirement. So this is why we can conclude that there are no apostles living today, but we have all of the apostolic authority here in the text. Real quick, I'm going to turn back to Acts chapter 9 just to look at Paul's conversion story and this experience of seeing the Lord. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, he says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning the Christians, the believers, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And the story goes on that there's a disciple named Ananias, who the Lord appears to and tells him to go to Saul, to lay his hands on him, to pray for him that he might regain his sight. And Ananias does so. And he enters the house, and starting in verse 17, he says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So Paul, an apostle, has seen the risen Christ. The Lord Jesus appears to him. Secondly, so first, he is laying out his apostleship, but secondly, he's appealing to the authority that comes with it. The authority that comes with the office of apostle. This is essential. This is necessary. Especially as we look at this letter and what he tells Timothy. He calls him to persevere in the gospel, to stand firm in it. That goes the same for all of us as believers. We must stand firm. But to do so, he has to speak with the authority of an apostle. He says so as if, because I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, because I've experienced him, because I've seen him, because I've been given this special role and authority, I tell you now, stand. Stand firm. Hold on to this gospel, which you have heard. Beyond that, though, why was he made an apostle of Christ Jesus? Notice the next line. He says, by the will of God. God's will was indeed for Paul to be an apostle. As we know the story of Paul, he was a Pharisee, a persecutor of Christians. He was present for the arrest and the deaths of so many Christians. His whole intent 
in life was to destroy. I mean, on his way to Damascus, that was his goal, to stamp out anyone who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed that they were idolaters, blasphemers, ones going against the true faith. It was by God's will alone that we get to the story of Paul's conversion. Paul didn't choose to become an apostle. It wasn't just random luck or chance. He didn't just pull the lottery ticket and find that he won that day. No. And trust me, based on, we'll read this in a little bit, Paul's suffering, you can definitely tell he wasn't lucky. It wasn't an enjoyable time. It was challenging. It was painful. Painful and excruciating in so many ways. Physically, emotionally, mentally exhausting. But this was God's plan. This was God's will. This was God's divine selection that Paul be saved for the work of the ministry as an apostle. Not just as someone who became a believer and then went out to share the good news as we're all called to do, but Christ appeared to him to give him the apostolic authority to then bring this good news to the Gentiles. It wasn't just his desire for him to be saved, but to have authority as he spoke. To have authority as he wrote this letter, 2 Timothy. This letter is God-breathed. As Paul goes on to say in chapter 3, all scripture, including this right now, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is writing this not as only a brother to Timothy, which he was, not only as a father in the faith, which he was, but with divine truth and authority behind his words. And notice how he finishes this first verse. He says, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. According to, kata, meaning in conformity to or in line with. What is the reason that God's will was to bring Paul unto salvation and apostleship? That he might live in accordance with the gospel, this promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He was looking upon the promise that Christ had made himself, right? John 3.16, he says, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Paul's life was marked as one who was living in accordance with the call that was placed on him by the Lord to bring the good news, to proclaim the gospel. Just hearing that, I invite you to think about yourselves and ask the question, if you're a believer here this morning, are you living in accordance with the call that has been placed on your life? Every one of us here, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, has been called to share the gospel, the good news of the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You are called to go out into the world, to your workplaces, to your families, to your friends, to random strangers, to whoever you come in contact with, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I invite you, if you are not doing that, hear the call. If you are truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you truly love him this morning, if you truly believe that by him and him alone you were saved and that you will enter into eternal kingdom with him, why would you not share it? 
Why would you not tell everyone? Knowing the alternative. Because all of us were there. If you are a believer, then you know the alternative, right? You were living in darkness. You were living under the wrath of God. God's wrath waiting to be poured out upon you is only his mercy that allowed you to live another day, to have another breath. And so knowing that, knowing that God's wrath is sitting upon everyone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then called to share the good news. So who is Paul writing to? He goes from this lofty entrance, right? He goes from this heavy talk of his apostleship and this being by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And he says something so personal, so intimate. He says to Timothy, my beloved child. Timothy, this brother in the faith that Paul had met during his second missionary journey, who had joined him in the ministry with Silas. However, Timothy was not just a companion. He wasn't just a friend. He held a special place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul writes and he says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Or as he says here, my beloved child. Timothy was a product of a mixed marriage. He was the son of a father who was a Gentile and a mother who was a Jew who converted to Christianity, Eunice. His grandmother, Lois, also. And they taught him scripture from a young age. And so as he hears the preaching of Paul, he comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and goes into ministry with him. And Paul finishes his greeting by saying, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. While this was a greeting, Paul reconfirms his love for Timothy here. He shares his true desire for him. He desired that Timothy remember the grace that saved him, to live in accordance with the mercy that had been shown by him, or shown by God to him, and to be filled with the peace, especially in the midst of this trying ministry. You have to think that as Paul is writing this, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, Nero was in rule over the empire. He was killing Christians. He was persecuting them in large quantities. And so Timothy was stepping out into a perilous field. He was stepping out into something that wasn't pleasant, wasn't fun, wasn't easy. And so he gives him this blessing. It's both a promise, as we know, because these things are true about who God is, right? God is filled with his grace and his mercy and his peace. Those are things that pour forth from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's also a prayer that Timothy would find these things to be true in his ministry and in his life. Paul is, in effect, telling Timothy, May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you the best, namely his grace to cover your sin, mercy to trump any struggle, and peace to rule over every single aspect of your life. We can take notes here from Paul as he greets Timothy. Do you desire the best for your brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you motivate them 
with truth. The truth that God is indeed filled with grace. He is merciful towards you. And he is the giver of true peace in the midst of all situations. Paul's writing here should get us start to get us to start pondering on our speech, how we talk to one another. We know that we're called to build one another up. And Paul gives us a perfect example here. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So moving from the who, let us ask when. When did Paul write this letter? Do we know anything about the timing? Well, based on Paul's writing of 1 Timothy being somewhere in the early 60s AD, and we know that Paul wrote 2 Timothy while he was imprisoned in Rome shortly before his death, we can make an estimate. It was probably somewhere in the 64 to 65 AD. However, some have said it could be as late as 67 AD. But we know at least that mid to later 60s. Where? Where was Paul and where was Timothy? Well, Paul was writing from Rome. How do we know? If you'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 6 through 8 here. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he says, For I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's talking about his own death here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knows that his death is imminent. He knows that the time is coming, that he will be executed. Hence why he also goes on in verse 9 to say, do your best to come to me soon, right? He's telling him, please come soon because my time is limited here. So where is Timothy? Well, Timothy is still in Ephesus where he had been left by Paul previously. Turning back just a few pages to 1 Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he had left him in Ephesus, and Timothy has now been pastoring this church, caring for this church. And as far as history in the church seems to suggest, Timothy stayed in Ephesus for the remainder of his ministry until his death. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it says that Timothy died in 97 AD after confronting a group that was celebrating a pagan festival. And they were lifting up idolat like idolatrous symbols and imagery. And he confronted them and rebuked them. And talk about not having an easy ministry. They pulled out clubs and they beat him. And just two days later, he died. So we know Timothy has a steady ministry here in Ephesus. And as Paul is writing, this is where he's working and ministering and giving his life. Why did Paul write this letter? Coming to the why now. Unlike Paul's first letter to Timothy, which was very much about the order and the holiness of the church, this letter is much more personal. 
First Timothy focused mostly on the church and how the church is to act. Remember, if you turn back to First Timothy chapter 3, we looked at this now, it's been over a year, I think, or close to a year. First Timothy chapter 3, in verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So First Timothy is all about behavior in the church. It's about how the structure of the church is. Remember, we had talked about how beliefs impact behavior, hence why he talks about certain beliefs, core beliefs. He goes on in that 1 Timothy chapter 3 to talk about this mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. He talks about beliefs and then talks about how those should impact the behavior of the church, how the behavior of the church should, should look. I didn't finish reading, but he had said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. His concern is with how the church is acting. But he knows that it's not just outward behavior that does it. It's not just outward behavior that makes a person saved, right? Because if that was the case, it would be works. If it was about our outward behavior, so many people could be saved today. The gate wouldn't be narrow because then they could just keep working and working and working. They put to death certain things, right? Oh, well, I'll stop drinking if that's good enough. I'll stop smoking if that's good enough. I'll stop doing whatever if that's good enough. But that's not what saves no, because our works can't do it. One, we're too sinful, but two, that's not how the Lord has called it. We are called to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And so he calls on the church in First Timothy to not only change behavior, but to address the beliefs behind it. And now we come to Second Timothy. On the other hand, is more directed at Timothy. While it still addresses areas like false teaching, it urges doctrinal firmness and truth. It is a personal letter. Hence we get Paul's final letter being filled with this charge to Timothy. Persevere in the gospel. Fulfill your ministry. Continue on in the faith. No matter what. No matter the cost. Paul is coming to the close. He's coming to the end. He suffered greatly for many years for the sake of the gospel. If you want to turn with me real quick to 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, I'd like to read real quick the storyline of Paul's suffering as an apostle. Starting in verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in 16, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I, saw, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. 
<laughs> but then he goes on. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Something that was supposed to cause death. He was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul's life had been suffering. Talk about weakness. Talk about suffering. Talk about toil and struggle and pain. You read these beatings. You think about being shipwrecked. For many people, that's one of the reasons they will never get on a cruise ship. The fear of being shipwrecked. They watched Titanic and thought, I'll never be that person. This is Paul, the apostle, the one who has suffered for the majority of his life now. And what does he say to Timothy? Stand firm in the faith, even in the midst of every trial and struggle. It's almost as if he's sitting in prison, looking back on his life, and he thinks, it's worth it. Stand firm, brother. Calvin wrote of this letter, and he says, it's written not merely in ink, but in Paul's lifeblood. It's as if he pours out his blood upon the pages. And this is what we're going to be diving into. How special for us. He pours everything out on these pages to Timothy to stand in the faith that Paul has so vehemently and sacrificially defended. This is why he's written this. And what does Paul share in this final letter? What will be the subject for us over the next several weeks? What are these key themes that we'll be looking at? What is of utmost importance in these final words that he writes to his dear child in the faith? There's six kind of overarching key themes, and we'll see those kind of strung out through the letter as a whole. So as we look through it, you'll see them appear over and over, but I'd like to just look at them a little bit this morning. The six being this. Number one, suffering is a part of the Christian life. Number two, 
the Christian should persevere by God's power in suffering. Number three, the gospel is the basis for Christian perseverance. Number four, the word of God has the power to save and to preserve the Christian. Number five, true believers persevere in the faith. And number six, false teaching must be addressed. Looking at those key themes just briefly, I'd like to run through them and just point out a few passages, a few verses through 2 Timothy. So we're going to make kind of a, a quick run through this. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. If you'll look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in the suffering. Paul calls on Timothy here to share in that suffering. It's not an option. It's not an offer. He calls it. He commands it. He says, you will suffer. Do it. You will have the opportunity to suffer. Suffer. That's the option. Suffer. And he goes on in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. Talking about this gospel. It's why he suffers as he does. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Once again, saying you must share in this. This is a part of the ministry. This is a part of being a Christian. This is a part of being a believer. Is sharing in suffering. Chapter 3 and verse 11. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Once again, sharing this reality that suffering is a part of the Christian life, that we're called to endure it. Chapter 4 and verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And even in later on, verses 14 through 18, he talks more about the suffering that he experienced, how he received great harm from Alexander the coppersmith, how he had been left deserted. No one came to defend him. So this first theme, suffering, is a part of the Christian life. The second being, the Christian should in perseverance should live in perseverance by God's power and suffering. Once again, going back to chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How is he going to sustain himself? Is it by his own strength? Was Timothy a brute of a man that could endure suffering? Probably not. Probably not. We know Paul was not. I can only imagine the injuries he was left with after the numerous beatings and the stonings and being shipwrecked and all the imprisonments. His body was weak. was not a strong body. He only persevered because of the power of God. Chapter 2 and verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Once again, strength found in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. 
The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, endure suffering, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. God is good. He will sustain. In turning to chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, he talks about this, looking towards the end, and he says that he will receive this crown of righteousness, as we read earlier. He has this hope, this knowledge, that at the end he will receive this crown of righteousness. Why? Because Paul thinks he can do it on his own? No. Paul knows he can't do it on his own. There's no way that Paul will get to his own crown of righteousness. He doesn't walk up to heaven at the end and put it on himself. No, it's because the Lord has sustained him. The Lord has strengthened him. The Lord has called him. And he brought him to completion. Number three, the gospel is the basis for Christian perseverance. Turning back to chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 he says, by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Once again, he didn't call us because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. We are saved by grace. And it is through Christ, through this gospel that has called us unto salvation, that we persevere in the faith. It's because he saved us. I'm sure many of you, over time, have tried to start something new. A new gym routine. A new way of eating. Maybe a new job. Maybe a new schedule for around the house. You think to yourself... If I just wake up 15 minutes earlier, I'll get everything done before I have to go to work or before the kids get up. First time it gets hard, what do we do? Ah, I'll start again tomorrow. I'll start next Monday, right? I'll come back next time. Maybe next year. Well, the kids are already past that age now, so it's okay. I can just not do it at all. But that's not how this works for us. In faith, we don't have to rely on ourselves. And Thank God that we don't. Because we know ourselves, right? We know that we would be quick to just give up when the going gets tough. But no, it's because of Christ that we are able to have perseverance. It is through this gospel that has saved us. This is why we affirm this reality of being saved by God's divine election. Because if we had made the choice to be saved, if we had made the decision to be saved... As soon as it got tough, it's really easy to walk away. But no, the Lord sustains. Thankfully, he does. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 8. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also or that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Once again, this perseverance that comes in and through the gospel. 
The word of God has the power to save and to preserve the Christian. Staying in chapter 2, turning to verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Do yourself, do your best to present yourself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word of God has the power to save. Hence why we're called to handle it well. Every believer, this isn't just for those that are in the preaching ministry, but every believer is called to handle the word well. To be thorough and diligent in study. To take it in its proper context. To read it well. To study it well. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. He says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, he's talking about Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training up in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God has the power to save and to preserve. It's because of what Timothy had learned about the scriptures from the Old Testament, from his mother and grandmother, that he then hears this Christ and is able to see all the shadows that were pointing to Christ. He's able to look back and see how Abraham and the covenant there was pointing to Christ. How God had sacrificed an animal to cover Adam and Eve. Talking about Moses and the law and saying the sacrificial law, this law where animals would come to the altar and be sacrificed. There would be a day when Christ would come and be the final sacrifice. All of these things pointing to Christ, and it's through that that then Timothy is saved. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he calls on him to preach the word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Knowing, why would he tell him to preach the word if it didn't save why would he tell him to share this good news if it didn't do anything? If it couldn't save, why would you bother? Number five, believers persevere in the faith. True believers stand firm in the faith. Chapter two, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God is a firm foundation. His foundation stands forever. It will not be moved. So why can we persevere in the faith? Why can true believers persevere in the faith? Because they know who God is. They know that God is a firm foundation. Chapter 4, verse 7 he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. True believers keep the faith. True believers are ones that have been called by God unto salvation. Not by their own, but by God. And so then they keep this faith. And number six, this final one, false teaching must be addressed. Chapter two, again, going back to verse 16 
But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. We must address irreverent babble. Chapter 3, we'll get to this eventually, but uh, verses 1 through 9 talks about godlessness in the last days. It talks about this reality of false teachers that are teaching all kinds of false ideals, false truths. Verse 7 says, always learning and never being able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And then chapter 4, verses 3 through 5 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We know that sound teaching is not endured even today. There's churches all throughout the land, or supposed churches all throughout the land, that are preaching all kinds of falsehoods. And so Paul charges Timothy and charges each of us here to address false teaching. And so there are six key themes. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. The Christian should persevere by God's power in suffering. The gospel is the basis for Christian perseverance. The word of God has the power to save and to preserve the Christian. True believers persevere in the faith. And false teaching must be addressed. Brothers and sisters, I truly look forward to diving into deeper depth here with you in this text of 2 Timothy, this beautiful letter. I pray that as we go through the letter, you see the importance of it. Not just because this is Paul's final letter, but because this is God's word and has the utmost importance to us. It is our authority. It is what speaks of how we are to be saved. It's what sanctifies us. But also it is Paul's Final letter. One of the most prolific authors of the New Testament. The most prolific author of the New Testament. And so we get to see what was on his mind. May this letter be a source of hope for us. An encouragement. As we see Paul call upon Timothy. And all of us here. As scripture is applicable, right? To all of us. To stand firm in this faith. To persevere in the gospel. Persevering through suffering as we await on the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us close in prayer.